This is a lot better attendance than I'm used to preaching to. Uh, it's great to be here this morning. I'm thankful for this opportunity. When Renee was praying, he mentioned one phrase that just kind of jumped out at me. And he was thanking God that we can know truth. We've listened to 20 messages on that you may know. And that has been the purpose of John's writing in 1 John. It's the purpose of his writing in the Gospel of John. And I've called these two messages on 2 John, Now That You Know. 2 and 3 John were written shortly after 1 John, most likely from Ephesus. And after John has given them all the teaching and taught them what they can know, he now addresses some things that they need to do after now that they do know. And so I have titled the first of these two messages this morning, Divine Commands for Those Who Believe. Several weeks ago, uh, Drew preached on uh, divine benefits for those who believe, and I'm piggybacking on that just like John piggybacks in Second John on what he taught in First John. The, uh, so we're going to look at the first six verses this morning uh, that John writes. In these verses, he writes to believers about their relationship with one another. In the following verses after that, he speaks about, but he writes to believers, but he writes about false teachers. But right now in these verses, he's talking about their relationship with one another and the relationship of truth and love. So let's read these verses together. The, the elder to the elect lady and her children, when he says the elect lady, I believe, uh, I tend toward the, uh, the position that he is writing to a church and its membership. There are other opinions, but we're not going to deal with that this morning. It doesn't matter for what we want to see this morning. He says, I write to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady... Not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. I want to look at these verses this morning under three main points. The first three verses, the relationship between truth and love. And then the two commands, walk in truth and walk in love. John begins with a salutation in these first uh, three verses to his readers. But his salutation is not just a greeting. Uh, he really sets forth the basis of what he's going to be saying for these commands. And he establishes how truth and love relate to one another and what that should mean in the lives of the believers. So we want to read these first three verses again in 1 John 1 through 3. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will abide with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. 
You know, the relationship of truth and love sometimes presents a challenge to us. Uh, There's a perceived tension between love and truth. How do we normally look? If we were to put them on a spectrum, we would probably put them on opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, And we would see truth on one side and love on the other. And the truth we tend to see as maybe a bit cold, hard, uh, uncomfortable sometimes, cutting, um, unyielding. And then we put love on the other side. Love is warm. It's welcoming. It's understanding. It's kind of, you know, cuddly. And we tend to fall, we tend to place ourselves or we tend to naturally fall somewhere on that spectrum. Some of us tend more to the truth side and some of us tend more to the love side. And you all have truth people in your lives, don't you? You have people who, you know, there are all kinds of cliches about truth people. We have truth people and we have love people. And we love the love people. Uh, The truth people sometimes are a little bit uncomfortable to be around. They're very forthright. There are a lot of cliches about them, you know. They let the chips fall where they may. They tell it like it is. They take a stand for the truth. They don't care what anybody else thinks about them. And sometimes we compare them to maybe a bull in a china shop. But truth people are very valuable and necessary. Love people are very sympathetic, understanding, encouraging. They can smooth over ruffled feathers They can help people get along. And truth people, to be honest with you, get a little bit frustrated with love people because love people just never never really stand up for anything. They don't stand for anything. They just kind of smooth things over and don't solve any problems, don't deal with the problems. And love people have a hard time with truth people. In fact, they have a hard time feeling loving towards them. And... You know, they just don't really care about people. They care more about program than people. And so this is kind of a a conundrum for us. If an intervention is needed with a person, a truth person can be very valuable uh, because they'll zero in on the issues. They'll confront them. They'll say what needs to be said. They'll talk about the elephant in the room. And there might be a lot of broken plates in the china shop but they'll deal with the problem. If a love person conducts the intervention, the people will sit down and talk, and not a single plate in the china plate in the china uh, cabinet will rattle. And there may not be anything solved, but everybody will sure feel a lot better about the situation. So we tend to think of a tension between truth and love. And we're here trying to find the balance, and sometimes we're over here a little bit, and sometimes we're over on this side of the spectrum. But John isn't presenting truth and love as an either-or thing here. Let's look at how he addresses love. Look what he says in the very very first verse, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. So John presents love as being bathed in truth, as being based in truth, as being uh, in truth. Look at the next phrase. He says that he talks about um, everyone who knows truth loves. 
And John is kind of subtly combating the Gnostic heresy that we can't really know truth, only a select few, because he says, he says, all who know truth, and he's speaking as he sends this letter out, everybody who reads this letter, he is assuming and he is teaching that we can actually know truth. And we're going to deal with that a little bit more next week. But then he says, he goes on to say, we love because of the truth. So he presents love as a product or a fruit of truth. So love is bathed in truth. Everyone who knows truth loves, and love is because of the truth. Love springs from truth. They are inseparable. There is no tension between them. If you try to think of, a, of an analogy here, sometimes we would say, Truth and love are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a one-sided coin. And so it is with truth and love. Uh, there is no truth without love. Uh, Drew was talking to us the other day, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying, he made this statement, and I think he was using it in his Ephesians 4 study in the evening gathering, but he was saying, there is no truthless love nor is there any loveless truth. Did you use that here? You did. Okay, well, you can put that down as a quote from him. I was going to have you put it down as a quote from me, but <laughs> since we're dealing with truth, I guess we should, uh, should do that. But that's how we tend to treat truth and love. It's kind of an either-or thing. Even in any certain situation, uh, we kind of decide, do we, need, do we need truth here or do we need love? Well, in this situation, this person really needs a lot of love. And we, we find ourselves shifting back and forth on the spectrum. And, you know, but even the coin analogy doesn't fit what John is saying here. Because, well, let me illustrate it this way. How many of you have ever flipped a coin? Raise your hand. Hold it up. Don't, don't put it down yet. Okay, now, if you have ever flipped a coin, you still got your hands up? Don't put them down. If, if you've ever flipped a coin and it came down heads and tails simultaneously, you can keep your hand up. Everybody else put them down. Okay? When you flip a coin, only one side comes up at the same time. So it's still an either-or thing. And John is not presenting truth as an either-or matter. So I like to think of it this way. I like to think of homogenized milk. All right? How many of you have ever drunk raw milk? You know, like right from the cow, okay? What happens when you drink it? You take the glass away from your lips and what? You, you got little globs of stuff on your lips. Okay, we used to go to a camp in the northern part of Spain. We'd go there every year and, and we, would do, we would speak at a, at a youth retreat for several churches in the area. And it was a beautiful camp up in the mountains. It was an old farmhouse, about 300 years old, with thick stone walls, huge beams, and just way up in the mountains, old, rustic as it could be. The rooms we slept in were the old stables, and the mangers were built into the wall. They were stone mangers built into the walls, and we would sleep in those rooms. And right next door to the camp, there was a small dairy farm. And so the people who worked in the kitchen in the early in the morning, they would go over to the farm and they would buy milk straight from the farm. 
it was not homogenized, it was not pasteurized, it had barely been milkinized. And they would bring it back over, and it would be warm from the cows. And that cream would rise to the top, and the guys in the kitchen would almost fight over that cream because they loved to skim it off and, and spread it on their toast. But we don't generally like to drink milk that is not homogenized. You see, milk has these real thick particles. They're, they have thick walls, and they rise to the surface, and they don't mix with the other, with the other milk, the other part of the milk. And so to homogenize it, what happens is they take the milk, they put it in a container, and they apply three, 4,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. They can, they can raise that up to almost 15,000 pounds if they want to. And they force it through these tiny pore-like holes. And as it is forced with such pressure through those pores, it breaks up the walls on the cream, and it mixes with the milk, the rest of the milk, and you can't separate it again. And I think that's how John is presenting truth and love to us. You can't have love without truth. You can't have truth without love. And so, we, we tend to compartmentalize truth and love, but they belong together. They're inseparable. Let's, let's look at the rest of verse 2, because there's another thing here that's really a blessing to, to see. Because... So John says that we, have, we love because of the truth. The truth is the very reason we love. And he said that truth abides with us and will be with us forever. Now what's John saying there? Look, look at what he says. This truth abides with us. That's a present tense. But the word abides is not talking about where something resides. It is speaking about the remaining. It doesn't leave. And so John says in our present tense, we, truth is abiding with us and it will remain with us. That takes care of this life. The truth, the same truth that abides with us right now will be the same truth that goes with us throughout all our life. And once we pass from this life and go to the forever life, what is remaining with us? The very same truth. It does not change. It is the same and it is eternal. You know what that sounds like to me? Absolute truth. And again, we will speak a little bit more about this uh, next week. But that's absolute truth. Verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. The order, the progression here with grace, mercy, and truth is very instructive. Westcott says, the succession of grace, mercy, and peace mark the order from the first motion of God to the final satisfaction of man. That's beautiful. God is the one who makes the first move toward us in grace. Grace is offered to the guilty and undeserving. Mercy is offered to the needy and helpless. Peace is offered to the sworn enemy of God. Grace removes guilt. Mercy relieves misery. Peace replaces enmity. On a spectrum of truth and love, if truth is over here and love is over here, where would you put 
grace, mercy, and peace. On which side? Grace and mercy are expressions of what? God's love, right? And they produce peace with God. But John, look how John expresses it. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in truth and in love. They cannot be separated. In truth and love, God makes the move of grace toward man, toward sinful man, and he provides exactly what he needs, peace with God. This is God, this is how God interacts with us, and this is how he wants us to interact with one another. Now, that grace, mercy, and peace that's real familiar sounding to us, we're, we're used to reading that in the different epistles. In most of Paul's epistles, it's grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he mentions a double blessing. Uh, Peter, in his epistles, uh, uses grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you. Um, but there's something different about this one. In all of the other places where this occurs in Scripture, in the, in the epistles, this is a prayer. It's a request. It's a desire. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Peace, grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's, it's like a prayer for this. This is the only one where John supplies a future tense. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. It's an affirmation. He is affirming. And doesn't that go right along with what he was teaching us in 1 John? That you may know. We can know that grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. We heard the choir sing, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It will be with us. The fact that I must have grace says that I am undeserving of God's favor. The fact that I must have mercy says that I am incapable of achieving God's favor. And the fact that I must have peace with God provided for me says that I am God's sworn enemy, making God's favor impossible for me. How dire can the situation be? And then God in truth and love says it will be provided. So now, having seen this relationship between truth and love, John proceeds to give two commands related to them. The first is walk in truth. John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. This is a command. When John says, I rejoice to find some of your children, he's not saying here, well, I found some of your children walking in the truth. Some were and some weren't. And I sure am glad that some were. That's not the idea here. The verb to find here, it has the idea of searching and finding something. But it also has the idea of, we, we use the word ran into. You know, Teresa comes from, from doing her shopping and she'll say, uh, 
uh, I ran into so-and-so at Aldi, and then I went over to Walmart, and I ran into so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And I'm thinking, you've got to be more careful. You can't be running into people as well. <laughs> and, but that's kind of the idea here of the, the word that John says, I rejoice to find I encountered some of your sons, some of your church, your brothers in your church. And you know what I found? <laughs> I found that they were walking in truth, just like our Father commanded us to do. And you know what? It brought me such joy. Truth. When God's people walk in truth, it brings joy to God's people. If my love for truth causes me to be unloving, then maybe it's not truth that I'm loving. Maybe it's just my opinion that I'm loving. Truth produces love. And then it produces joy when God's people are walking in truth. Brings to mind what John tells us in 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2 says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So John presents here the truth not as a, not as a subject to be studied, not as a fact to be learned. It is a path to be walked and a life to be lived. That's the command. Let's look at his second command. This clock up here says it's 3.32. Is that right? <laughs> time, time flies, I guess, when you're having fun. <laughs> Walk in love. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. The first thing we see here is the exhortation, John's exhortation to love. It may be that among the recipients of the letter, there was a problem in this area. Would not be surprising, but the, the way he asks it, I'm asking you, dear lady, and, and this is the essence of his, of his request, his ask. I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. John may be very well reflecting some of his own struggles in this matter of truth and love. It would not be surprising that some of the people in the church that was receiving this letter and all of us who read his letter today, it would not be surprising that we have struggles in this area. As I began to prepare this message, I, I said, Lord, why did you put this one on me? I know my own struggles in this area. 
And I think I got part of the answer on Wednesday night in our life group. We divided up for prayer, and Daniel Federoff and I were praying together. And so he prayed for me as I prepared the, the message and all, and he said, uh, and Lord, help Paul as he studies to, for this to become a part of his life. And I thought, so Daniel sees that struggle in my life too. <laughs> and, and yet... It's a struggle that we have, and it's, it's not surprising that John's readers would also have struggles in the same area. In fact, John himself, there's evidence in Scripture that John himself struggled with this. You remember when, John, when James and John were called to be disciples, and the Lord gave them a name, and he called them, what did he call them? Sons of thunder. And it's kind of, to me, it's almost amusing to read some of the commentators, and they kind of speculate on why did he give them this name, Sons, Sons of Thunder. And, um, and, you know, some of them speculate that, well, they had big, booming voices, and, and they could be heard by great crowds, and so they were called Sons of Thunder. And so I went to Scripture, and I couldn't find anything about that. And so, but the Lord does give us some indication, and he talks about their fiery temperament, and it tells us about John going out one day and finding a person who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. But he wasn't part of the group of disciples that followed Jesus. And John told him, you stop that and you stop that right now. You have no right to be doing that. And John, I believe John was defending Jesus' turf. He was trying to show his loyalty and he was trying to stake a, take a stand for truth. And he came back and told Jesus what he had done. And I think he was trying to show his loyalty to Jesus. And he said, he, 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 wasn't, he didn't come with us. So I told him to stop. And, and Jesus told him, John, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. He's not against us. He's for us. On another occasion, James and John were with Jesus in Samaria. And it was the, the Passover was approaching, and they were getting ready to head for Jerusalem. And because of the great debate between the Samaritans and the Jews about where was the place to worship God in Mount Gerizim, in, in Samaria, or in Jerusalem, and when they saw that Jesus, getting ready for the Passover, was ready to head toward Jerusalem, the Bible says they rejected him. And James and John said, Lord, you want us to call down fire on them from heaven? And Jesus said, you don't understand, do you? I didn't come here to destroy people. I came here to save people. And so John, James and John, I'm sure, were, they thought they were exercising truth and I believe that when Jesus called them sons of thunder, when he first called them, he was describing them at the beginning of that ministry. But it's interesting to me, we don't know John as the apostle of thunder. What do we know John as? The apostle of love. Do you think maybe God did a work in his life? The tenderness of his epistles, even in this exhortation, I ask you, dear lady, that we love one another. 
Just, just the tenderness there. You didn't know what God did a homogenizing work in John's life. You didn't know that homogenization was a part of sanctification, did you? That's what God wants to do. And sometimes he uses these pressure times in our lives to teach us that, to conform us more and more to his image. It's significant to me that we don't continue to find John referred to as the son, son of thunder just that first time. And it, to me, it's an indication that God had done a real work in his life. And so John now is perhaps seeing some of the same tendencies in the brothers to whom he's writing, and he implores them to love one another. He doesn't thunder at them for their lack of love, but seeing the need for it, he asks them to love one another. He doesn't command them to love one another. He doesn't even entreat them to love one another. Look what he says. I ask you, dear lady, what? That we love one another. He doesn't give them a command from which he is exempt. He's not handing down an exhortation from above. I ask you that we love one another. See how wonderfully humbly he deals with this need in their lives. And then we see the command to love. Having just said that John doesn't command his readers to love one another as a command coming from him, he does remind them that there is one who has commanded that love for one another, which brings up a question. Can love be commanded? Can we love on command? Love me. Sorry, love me. We tend to think of that as something beyond the scope of command and duty. There are those who would argue that love is beyond the reach of command. How can I command someone to love me? John Stott has an interesting, uh, instructive paragraph. He says, how can you tell me to believe we have this same problem with faith also. Believe. Just believe. I remember a, a, a man in Spain who I'd visited for two years studying with him. Bible studies. He had read all kinds of, of literature that cast doubt on Scripture. His wife was a beautiful, wonderful believer. For 50 years she prayed for him, and she passed away still praying for him not seeing him come to the Lord. And I started to visit him. It was an hour and 15-minute drive to his house. I would go every other week down there, and we would spend three or four hours talking. And he had all kinds of questions and all kinds of theories. And one day I told him, Antonio, at some point, you've just got to let God be God. You... You have all kinds of questions. If I could answer every single question that you have, I can't, but if I could, you would always have more questions. And at some point, you have to just say, God, I don't understand it, but because you say it, I will believe it. And he would tell me, Paul, that woman's faith was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. How I wish I could share her faith, but I can't make myself believe that. So, going back to Stott's 
Quote, how can you tell me to believe what I do not believe or love whom I do not love? The answer to this question lies in the nature of Christian faith and love. It is when faith is regarded as an intuition and love as an emotion that they appear to lie beyond the sphere of duty. But Christian faith is an obedient response to God's self-revelation in Christ. If men hate the light, it is because their deeds are evil. They do not believe in the Son because they are resolved not to obey Him. And that is why unbelief is sin and the unbeliever is condemned already. Similarly, Christian love belongs rather to the sphere of action than emotion. It is not an involuntary uncontrollable passion. You know, we talk about, don't I fall in love? It's kind of beyond my control, right? It is not an involuntary, uncontrollable passion, but unselfish service undertaken by deliberate choice. So faith and love are both commanded here. And in 1 John 3, 23, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Indeed, love can be commanded and is often commanded. How many times do we have the command in Scripture that you shall love the Lord your God? Husbands, love your wives. Love one another. It is a command. In fact, John says in verse 6 that the very definition of love is the keeping of his commandment. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. If you love me, John 14, 15, you will keep my commandments. And then he turns it around, he flips it over. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So love and obedience... Love and duty, love and commandments, love and truth go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. Where do we see this demonstrated? Stand at the foot of the cross with me this morning and look on the form of our Savior. And you will see the perfect blend of truth and love. If we were to stand at the open door of the empty tomb, we would see the perfect triumph of truth and love. And one day, before our Heavenly Father, we know that we will see the culmination of truth and love. For we shall be like him. And we will see him as he is. The psalmist says so poignantly, loving kindness and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Heavenly Father, teach us to love you and to love one another in truth. Teach us to more fully know truth so that we would know love. Teach us to love because of the truth. Help us, Lord, to grow in mercy, grace, mercy, and truth, and peace in truth 
and in love. Lord, we pray that our love would be shown in truth, obedience, and the keeping of your commandments. In Jesus' name.